the book of Second Chronicles really breaks down around Second Chronicles 7.14, a verse that we often use in talking about revival. And today we're in the pray passage on Jehoshaphat when he prayed to the God who reigned in all the earth. This hinge verse tells us how they prayed for revival, how these leaders prayed for revival. In the first part of World War I, King George V was on the throne of England. Things were not going well. And so King George, we don't know a lot about George V, but we know this. He knew how to call his people to prayer. And so what he did was he called a national day of prayer. The British army was outnumbered. The French army had already had 300,000 that had been killed. The Germans were on the verge of taking Paris. And the king called a national day of prayer. The German advance was stopped. There are eyewitnesses on that battlefield from the British side that have testified historically that they saw an angel intervene in the battle. In a context of prayer, God does what he won't do in any other context. Toward the end of the war, King George called for another national day of prayer. This time, he called for all of Parliament to gather with him at St. Margaret's Westminster, and they did. Parliament gathered with the king. The people prayed, and in three months, the victory had been won in World War I, and the German forces had been defeated, and the Allies had won. In revival, God often finds kings, politicians, national leaders. But the key is they have to be available. They have to be teachable. They have to listen to the Word of God and see what God is trying to say to the people, and then they have to communicate that. Stephen Alford, a great voice on revival, said, Revival is the sovereign act of God in which he restores his own backsliding people to repentance, faith, and obedience. Charles Finney, the leader of revival in another century, said, It presupposes that the church is sunk down in a backslidden state, and revival consists in the return of the church from her backslidings and in the conversion of sinners. Finney went on to say that Christians are more to blame for not being revived than sinners are for not being converted. What Finney was trying to say by that is that when the church is doing what she is supposed to do, the nation will see and know that there is a God and that God needs to be worshipped and honored. But if the church fails, if it forsakes the word, if it forsakes prayer, if the church falls back on her responsibility to be the voice in the world of what God seeks to do, then we are to blame when a nation becomes corrupt and decayed. If the church gets lazy, then you can know this. There will be people, opinions, laws, responses, and attitudes that will rise up in the land that would have never been there had the church been doing what she was supposed to do. 
You can lay the blame on the moral depravity of America and our obsession with everything but God. You can lay the blame at the foot of the professing church in America that does not live out its faith outside the walls of the church that just sits lazily and absorbs more information and sings familiar songs, but never does anything about what we've seen and heard. And so what God wants to do with us today in this message is show us how important prayer is if we're going to have revival. You cannot read First and Second Chronicles without seeing the awareness of prayer, the need for prayer. You see it in the prayer of Jabez in First Chronicles 4. And the God granted his request in Solomon for wisdom in Second Chronicles 1.9. And God answered him in Asa's prayer for deliverance in Second Chronicles 14. In Hezekiah's prayer for God to lengthen his day in Second Chronicles 32. All through this book, is an emphasis on prayer. It's not just enough to humble ourselves and to turn. We must pray. And God is driving us to prayer. John Blanchard said, prayer is not wrestling with God's reluctance to bless us. It is laying hold of his willingness to do so. So let me just ask you a question right here before we dive into these four points that are in your notes. Are you happy with the way things are? Uh, I'd, I'd ask that a question for a response. Are you happy with the way things are? Are you happy with the condition of our country? Are you happy with the moral climate of the nation in which we live? Then we need to pray. We're not going to change it by voting. I mean, we've had people that say they honor God and people that don't honor God, and none of them have changed it. It falls on us. Judgment begins, according to the Word of God, at the house of God, not at the White House, not at the House of Representatives, not in the Senate. Judgment begins in the house of God. And if the moral climate, if the atmosphere of America is ripe for judgment more than mercy, then the blame is on us. It is not on the people who don't know better. It's on the church that knows better and sits quietly and does nothing and does not raise its level of praying. Look at these statements on why we need to pray for revival. We pray in the name and authority of Jesus Christ. We're not praying in the name and authority of our church or our denomination, but in the name and authority of Christ. We pray with the help of the Holy Spirit. We pray longing for the will of God, John, 1 John 5, 14. This is the confidence we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. We pray that in all things God would be glorified. That's big picture, by the way. That's big picture. We pray that God would be glorified, not that we would feel better, Listen, if you're praying that God would send revival to America so you don't have to undergo persecution, God's not going to answer that prayer. God is not going to answer that prayer because your prayer is to save your hide, not to see God be glorified. You better decide why you pray what you pray. 
And what you pray is important because it's not about God keeping us from what other people in the world are going through. It's about God being glorified. And if revival has to come through the American church going through persecution and through Christians being arrested and through Christians being martyred in America, if that glorifies God, are you willing to pray that? Because it's going to mess up your trip to the lake. It's going to mess up your trip to the beach. It's going to mess up your trip to the mountains. It's going to mess up you taking every other Sunday off. Because it's going to show who really loves Jesus and who's just pretending. There's a question in the book, The Insanity of God, and in the movie. Is Jesus worth it? Now, we could say, oh, Jesus is worth it. Let's all lift our hands and let's clap to praise God. Jesus is worth it. But when it comes to your life and the life of your family and your comfort, is Jesus worth it? That you would give up whatever it is you think you've got to have so that Christ might be glorified. That's the question of revival. And we pray boldly before the throne of grace to our loving Heavenly Father, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Literally, that says prayer worked in by the Holy Spirit is effective. You see, if we want God to awaken our land, he has to first awaken us. Jim Elliott said, God is still on the throne. We're still on his footstool. And there's only a knee's distance in between. We're as close to God moving as we are to our willingness to change our level of praying. So let's look at some incentives to pray. First of all, because God is sovereign. Second Chronicles 20 and verse 5. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. Jehoshaphat did not pray, Lord, bless us and those we love. He reminded God of who he was. He's a God of covenant. He's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's a God of law. He is a God of decency. He's a God of order. He's a God of holiness. And he says, Lord, I don't know about what's going on with all these other nations, but I know this. You're greater than all the other nations. You are bigger and you are greater and you are stronger. And when people pray that way, history records that God takes the impossible and makes it possible. Nebuchadnezzar found that out in Daniel 4 when it says the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. Now here's what will discourage you. Watching too much news. You know, you can watch one news program after another after another and it's just different voices parroting the same thing. As if they have the final authority. And you say, well, we got this person on the left and this person on the right. We've got this Democrat. We've got this Republican. And you know what it is? It's a pooling of ignorance. It's a pooling of ignorance. You need to turn your cotton-picking TV off. And you need to get on your knees and ask God to do in our land what these people that say they have the answers don't have. What they can't do, God can do. 
What they can't change, God can change. If God can write on the wall for a king to wake up and pay attention, he can get into anybody's office and anybody's home at anybody's time. The only thing he's waiting for is a man or a woman or a church or people to stand up and say, God, are you not reigning over all the earth? Are you not in control? Are you not greater than all the nations? All he was doing was reminding God of who God was. God didn't need to be reminded, by the way. But the king needed to remind the people, and they heard him praying in this court. And he reminds them that God is the king of the seen and the unseen. Secondly, because God honors his word, verse 7. Now in verse 7, he begins talking about what God did in the past. Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it? to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever. They have lived in it and have built you a sanctuary there for your name, saying, should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry to you in our distress, and you will hear and deliver us. Now, what he's saying is, we know that the enemy is not going to go silently. We know that there are going to be issues. We know there's going to be problems, and we know that we may backslide. But we also know that if we return to you, if we do what you tell us to do, if we honor your word, you will hear and deliver us. So he's talked about the past. He's talked about a promise. Now he comes in verse 10, and he talks about the present. Now behold the sons of Ammon and Moab and Seir, whom you did not let Israel invade when they came out of this land of Egypt. They turned aside from them and did not destroy them. See how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from your possession, which you have given us an inheritance. So what did he do? He prayed based on historical evidence. He prayed based on promises. He goes all the way back to Genesis and to the book of Joshua. The Lord had promised Solomon when the temple was dedicated, my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. Our theme for refresh is seek. God says, if you seek me, you'll find me. You're not seeking him, you're not going to find him. And by the way, you never find what you're not looking for. What we're looking for is a fix or a feeling. What God's looking for is a seeking. He's looking for a seeking people. He's looking for people who seek him individually. Verse 12, because God sees and knows. Verse 12, oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do. In other words, <laughs> the cabinet met. The Congress met. Nobody can figure out how to fix this. Sounds like a newspaper headline. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Not on Washington, not on Atlanta, not on the county courthouse, not on the mayor's office. Our eyes are on you. Get your eyes off the things that can't fix this problem. Put your eyes on the one that can. He says, we are powerless. 
And all Judah was standing before the Lord, their infants, their wives, and their children. They were united in desperate prayer. By the way, this means that mom and dad and grandparents were to set the example. Those babies and children didn't get there by themselves. We set the example by bringing our children into an environment where they see generation after generation seeking the Lord. Then in the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came on upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, verse 15. And he said, listen. It's a good word. Listen. Pay attention when God's speaking. Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. So here is a prophet who's telling a king what he needs to do. Now there's a novel thought. Listen, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed. You ever seen that before in the Bible? It's in the book of Joshua when they're facing an insurmountable wall and an enemy to take a land from people that have come out of captivity, that have wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Don't fear. Don't be dismayed. Do not fear to be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Folks, this is not our battle. It's God's battle. It's not your agenda. It's God's agenda. It's not your plan. It's God's plan. We have got to listen to the Word of God if we want to know how to fight the spiritual battle for our homes, our families, our community, and our church. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourself. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, here he goes again. Must have been Baptist because they didn't get it the first time. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. Listen, here, here's what he's saying. God will help people that listen to him. You know why God doesn't help some people? They won't listen to him. God says to them, do this. Well, I'd like to have a vote on that. Well, do this. Well, you know, I keep my faith kind of in my box on Sundays, but, you know, Monday through Saturday is my business. God says, do this. And I'm telling you, we got people in this room, you shouted like a band of wild Indians yesterday during a football game, and you sit on your hands on Sunday. What that says is you're more committed and fanatical about a team than you are about the one that's going to get you into heaven. If you can shout more at a ball game than you can praise God at church, shame on your Christianity. No wonder the world doesn't want it. If you can't get any more excited about what God did for you in the blood of Jesus than you do, then no wonder nobody wants what you've got. I don't want it either. Look at verse 12. Will you not judge? The word judge there means judge. Will you not judge? Will you not render a verdict? By the way, the name Jehoshaphat means Jehovah, Yahweh, will judge. And he says, get your eyes on the Lord. 
The psalmist said, my eyes are ever on the Lord. Our eyes look to the Lord our God until he shows us his mercy. My eyes are fixed on you. And the prophet is responding to the prayer. So here's what's happened. Jehoshaphat has prayed. God has spoken to the prophet in response to the prayer. And now he's telling the people what to do. And twice he has told them, do not fear or be dismayed. Now listen, if you just look around, you'll pull the covers over your head, triple bolt your doors, because you're afraid of where you live or what's going to happen. Can I tell you something? Most of what you're afraid of, you have no control over. What you do have control over are what you put your faith in. You're going to put your faith in your ability or you're going to put your faith in God? Where, where are you going to put it? I'm glad somebody's listening. <laughs> so the repeating of this charge frames the way we are to think. The Lord is with you. You don't have to fight this battle. Stand and see. Now, what does that remind us of? Well, it reminds me of Moses at the Red Sea. You know, Moses was a pretty good pastor. He got him out of bondage, and he led him to the Red Sea. And then the deacons and the Sunday school teachers rose up against him and started complaining. Well, look at here. We got this sea in front of us. We got this army coming behind us. We could have stayed there and eaten garlic and leeks and onions. And, and why'd you bring us out here? To, you just brought us out here to get us killed. And in the Hebrew, it says, shut up. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord. Listen, there's something in front of us that we can't move like a Red Sea. God can move it. Joshua goes out. He's trying to figure out. He's been planning and preparing for this for 40 years. Walking around Jericho. Hmm. Some mighty big walls there. Tell you what, I don't know if we got the weapons. You know, they can see us out here on the other side of the river. You can get up on the mountain above old Jericho and you can look out and you can see the Jordan River. You can see where they cross and you can see the area of the wilderness where a million people, it's kind of hard to hide a million people. So Joshua was walking around one day, he's trying to figure it out. You know, say, okay, if I do a flanking move here and if I do a frontal assault here, if we get this gate down and knock this gate down, maybe if we can climb this wall, we can get it done. And the captain of the Lord of hosts shows up to Joshua and says, what are you doing? And Joshua says, whose side are you on? By the way, we got a lot of evangelicals asking that question right now. Wrong question. Whose side are you on? Wrong question. The question is, are you on the Lord's side? Because the Lord said, I'm the captain of the Lord of hosts. And Joshua bowed before him. And that's where he got the game plan. Had to stand and see that God could do with just a bunch of people marching around and playing a few horns more than he could do with all the men with all their weapons. David did it with Goliath, 1 Samuel 17, 45. You come to me with a sword and spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. That's a pretty brave boast for a teenage boy against a giant. 
And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Here's our problem. Our focus is on the giant. Our focus needs to be on the Lord. Now, I don't know how big your giant is, but I know that my God's bigger than your giant, and he don't need my help. He just needs me to cooperate with him. Stand and see. I'm about to take your head off. You know that giant, we don't know what that giant said, but he probably laughed and called him a few names. But at the end of the day, whose head was missing? David picked it up and ran with it. The head of a giant who an entire army was afraid of. David, a young shepherd boy, picked it up and ran with it. You know what that tells me? God just got to find one person. Now we, can, we can all sit and say, well, I hope God finds somebody. I really hope God finds somebody. And God's got a beam on your seat saying, you're the somebody I'm looking for. Why not you? Why not us? Why not here? Why not now? Why wouldn't this be the place? Why couldn't we be the people that believe God that he can turn a nation around if we raise the level of our praying and believing the word of God? Finally, God expects obedience and surrender, verse 18. Jehoshaphat bowed his head, that's an act of surrender, with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord and worshipped him. Verse 20, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Remember, he spoke in a prayer environment. Listen to me. Put your trust in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. And when he had consulted with the people, he called Mark Willard and told him to get the choir in the front of the line. That's what it says. Kind of. <laughs> he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire. And they went out before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. And when they began singing and praising, the Lord took the enemy out. Now, what just happened? Nobody raised a sword. Nobody went to war in the way we think of going to war. But what God did is God showed up in power when his people showed up in prayer and praise. You want to know what? Listen. Everybody looking at me? You want to know what limits the power of God in this church? It's the level of your prayer and the level of your praise. God is unlimited in what he can do in this place, but he's going to have to have us engaged in prayer and in praise. And when that happens, the devil flees. Now, he'll come back for a more opportune time. But can I tell you something? When you don't pray, when I don't pray, when we don't praise, 
The devil has your seat. The devil is sitting in your seat because the devil hates praise to God. You say, well, I'm a believer. Well, you're cooperating with the devil. When you don't pray and when you don't praise, when you don't sing and worship and call out to God and believe that God's the only answer, what you've done is you've listened to the voice of the enemy and says, it won't do any good. That's not what Jehoshaphat said. Verse 20 can read, put your faith in God and it will be amen. One translation reads, be sure in the Lord and you will be secure. Another one says, affirm the Lord and you will be confirmed. One says, stand firm in the Lord and you will be stood firm. So what do they do? They seek the Lord, they hear the Lord, and they praise the Lord. That's what we ought to do every time we worship. We ought to seek the Lord, we ought to hear the Lord, and we ought to praise the Lord. And then the enemies will be routed. John Quincy Adam, July 4th, 1821, said, the highest glory of the American Revolution was this. It connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil government and the principles of Christianity. From the day of the Declaration, they, the American people, were bound by the laws of God, which they all, Adam says, everybody understood the laws of God, and by the laws of the gospel, which they nearly all, in other words, the majority of people, were believers in Jesus Christ, which they all or nearly all acknowledge as the rules of their conduct. And yet, in November of 1980, the Supreme Court ruled that the Ten Commandments could not be posted on the wall of a classroom in Kentucky. This is what the Supreme Court said in taking down the Ten Commandments from the walls of classrooms. They may induce children to read, meditate upon, perhaps to venerate, and to obey the commandments. Well, that would be a shame, wouldn't it? Oh, they may read, there's only one God. They may read, honor your father and mother. They may read, do not commit adultery. They may read, do not steal. They may read, do not envy. Gosh, that would be terrible if they actually understood that there were consequences to not doing what God said. How do people know they're sinners? Because they know they're lawbreakers. You take the law down, and then the rule of man becomes the rule of law, and that is always trouble. By the way, the American church, the American church, this church, every other church, no church that anyone can find increase their praying or their humbling of themselves after that ruling. We just picketed and marched and wrote to our congressman. That did us a lot of good, didn't it? Now, what is it going to take, folks, to wake up the church of Jesus Christ? What's it going to take to wake you up? Forget about all the other churches. Say, well, you know, let, let me tell you something. If liberal churches had heard all the gospel that you had heard, they would have all repented by now. But because they don't hear the word, 
They just sit oblivious. We cannot sit oblivious to what's going on. When the Supreme Court made this ruling, they said, hey, law of God doesn't rule in this land anymore, and we certainly don't want our children to know that we are a nation founded on the principles of the laws of God. By the way, the Supreme Court still meets in a room with the Supreme Court has the Ten Commandments on the walls of that room. Sitting in judgment over the Supreme Court is the God who rules and overrules. They will be judged by the laws that they have rejected. Now listen to me. We sit in a land of moral collapse, a flat economy, a mounting debt, terrorism, overwhelming paganism, environmental pantheism, humanistic egoism, and the demonic, and the stakes are high, and the church is going, how are you going to entertain us? What kind of games are you going to let us play? When are you going to back off the preaching of the Word of God? So just tell us what we want to hear. When are you going to scratch us where we, oh, we itch right there. Just scratch us right there, preacher. Give us three simple steps to be simple Christians. That's what we want. Three simple steps, but not as long as I'm pastor. That's not what you're going to get. The stakes have never been higher. They are higher for you. They are higher for your children. They're higher for your grandchildren, and they're higher for a generation yet to be born. And we will not fix this problem on a Tuesday in November. If we don't start fixing it now, we are dead in the water and under the wrath of God. And yet, it won't change most of us in how we pray. Until they knock on your door and take away your rights, then you're going to pray too late. Jonathan Edwards said, when God is about to do a great work, he pours out a spirit of supplication. I want to ask you a question. Are you going to walk out of here and say, man, I don't know what got the preacher worked up this morning, but he was sure worked up. Are you going to walk out here and do something about your prayer life? Are you going to walk out here and do something about listening to what God says? Are you just going to walk out of here and say, well, that, that's interesting. And, you know, refresh is coming. I know he's getting worked up about that. Let me tell you something, folks. Every worship service either leads you to come to Jesus or run from Jesus. Everyone. When we worship, we either are coming to Jesus and trying to get closer to Jesus and depending more on Jesus or we're running from him. There's no in-between. There's no in-between. You cannot be neutral. You'd be like the guy in the Civil War who put on a, a, a Union top and Confederate pants and both sides shot him. <laughs> you can't be neutral on this. You are in a battle. Is Jesus worth it? Is he worth you changing your agenda? Is he worth you changing your prayer life? Is he worth you changing how you listen to the Word of God? Is he worth you adjusting your schedule 
for these next few weeks for refresh. Is he worth it? Because if he's not now, he won't be later. Today is the day. Now's the time. This is the hour in which we decide, is Jesus worth giving our allegiance to, our loyalty to, that we are on the same page with what God wants to do. We are in a battle against overwhelming forces. And those forces are going to run over the church in America unless the church learns how to stand and go on the offense. So I'm going to invite you this morning, as others are already coming, I'm going to invite you to get up from where you are and come to this altar not just for a moment or two of praying, but by your coming to this altar, you're saying, God, God, I, I am changing the way I pray. I am changing the way I think. I need to see you work. I need to see you move, first and foremost, in my own life. In my own life. Before I ever ask you to change the nation, I need to bow before you. I need to humble myself before you. I need to see you not as, not as the last resort, but as the first option of my life and of my heart. Will you come and will you pray? I'm just going to ask you from where you are to start praying out to God. You, it doesn't matter how you say it. I'm just going to ask you to just start out loud praying. Let God hear the praises. Let the devil hear your praises and your prayers to God right now. Would you just call on the name of the Lord right now? Call on him to intervene in our land.